Hey folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode, you'll hear Andrew Panabianco. And not to get it like properly erect, just to get it like al dente, you know what I mean? That and more. But first, I want to remind everyone that Risk is coming to Seattle on February 1st, 2014. The theme that night is shocking. And we're coming to Dallas on February 7th. The theme is over the top. Pitch us your stories. Write to me directly at Kevin at Risk show.com. Everyone in Seattle and Dallas, we want to give you the chance to get up on our stage. Now, here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is uh, Mark Clark. <laughs> I mean, now, why? It's not even a funny name. I don't know why I laughed. Mark Clark, God bless him. Folks, today's episode is called Live from Philly 4. We went down to Philly once again. We love the folks at First Person Arts, a wonderful organization they have down there in Philly. They put on all kinds of great shows. Jamie Brunson and James Claiborne always take care of us. And it was a truly lovely evening this time around. Featured one of those stories on our last episode. And here's three more today. We're going to start with Andrew Panabianco writer and storyteller down there you can find him on twitter at fancy white bread here he is right now with a story we call al dente see if I can take this out, if that's possible. I hope that's okay. Um, so there's some really intense uh, emotional admissions tonight, uh, really brave stories. Uh, I'm about to tell you a story about my scrotum. <laughs> so uh, sorry, Dad. I was 19, uh, a sophomore in college, and I was spending my afternoon in much the same way that I spent most of college, which is to say I was lying on the floor watching Seventh Heaven with my hand down my pants. Not for any particular reason, mind you. Uh, there was nothing masturbatory about this. Instead, it's more like a safety blanket. I, like, I've had girlfriends who, and I don't do this all the time. I saw a guy nod back there. Sir, you know what I'm talking about. It's not sexual. It's, like, it's the same thing as like leafing through a magazine when you're bored. It's just something to do with your hand, right? So I'm just lying there, watching Seventh Heaven, which I don't actually like. It was my first instance. It's terrible, right? It's just so saccharine. It's, right, it's just, it's mental diabetes. And it's, but you, but you, you, you just, you hate watch it. That was my first example of hate watching, and they're just so vile. It's just the, so I'm lying there watching Seventh Heaven with my hand down my pants, just kind of idly, just ambling along. And I come across something that, up until that point, I did not recognize. I felt one. I felt two and a half. 
Well, more like two and like an eighth, but still, I found this kind of strange outcropping on one of my balls, and I was like, what the hell is, I don't, I know this area. I've known this area for a long time. What could this be? And then like the dark part of my brain says testicular cancer. And I say, oh shit, I've got testicular cancer. Oh my God. And you have to understand something. You don't know me personally, but I'm exquisitely neurotic. So if there is even like the slightest notion that something could go wrong, my brain will take it and spin it out into an utter Greek tragedy and it will befall me personally. So I go and I immediately pick up my phone and I call my father who is a doctor, and he has been on the receiving end of my insane bullshit for 32 years, Dad. Thank you. And I say, uh, Dad, and he goes, what? Because he already knows. He goes, what? And I say, Dad, I, I think, I, think I, I got something on my nut, and I don't, I don't really, I think, I think I have cancer. And my dad goes, oh, Jesus. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll call, I'm going to call him Jimmy. I come from a medical family. My father is a doctor. My mother was a nurse. My stepmother was a nurse. My, uh, what am I saying? My cousin is a nurse. Everybody in my family is, is in medicine. I'm a writer. Want nothing to do with it. I don't even like my own body, let alone somebody else's. But my, part of growing up in a medical family means that uh, you would think that there'd be a lot of uh, focus and attention given to like, you know, the important like, you know, emotional weight of medicine, but it isn't. It's just kind of like, oh, what, you got something on your ball? Let me call my friend Jimmy. And then he just sends me off to the hospital. And I'm just like, uh, and I'm off looking for Jimmy, who I've known my entire life. He's like a surrogate father to me. So I get in the car, and I'm driving in the car, and I drive to this hospital in New Jersey and I wait for him in the lobby and he comes down and he sees me and this guy's such a bullshitter he just comes up to me with a shit eating grin and he's like hey how you doing what's going on you, you okay what's going on down there <laughs> and I'm like there's a distinct lack of like necessary decorum considering the fact that I might have testicular cancer so like what, let's go so he says come on I'll, I'll, I'll take it so he leads me and not into an exam room but he leads me into the bathroom of the doctor's lounge And he says, uh, okay, let's see it. And I go, <sighs> and I, like, no man in this room, no person in this room likes the scrotum, right? It's just that thing that we have to carry in order to propagate the species. You know what I mean? It's really unfortunate. It literally is a sack. There's nothing attractive about that. So I stand there, balls out, and there's Jimmy on his knees, poking at it. And he's looking at it, he goes, ah, yeah, uh, and I'm just, <sighs> while he's doing his thing. And he goes, yeah, I don't think this is cancer. I think you're okay. I think this is, uh, this, is this looks like it's a result of some kind of trauma. Do you ever hit your nuts? And I was like, I, I don't think so. Like, maybe, like, probably, but never, like, never, never, never in such a way that would, like, necessitate the word trauma. You remember trauma, or you utterly forget it, but I, like, neither of those things have happened. Like, you know, it's in this case, like, I hadn't buried anything, and I, nothing was springing to mind, so I'm like, meh. And so we, he's like, okay, yeah, look, just to be sure, because if you can't remember a specific trauma, like, it could be, but I'm going to set you up an appointment to go and get an ultrasound of your scrotum. In the meantime, don't worry too much. You're going to be okay. So I'm like, okay, I'm feeling a little bit better. And so we walk out of the bathroom, and there are three doctors standing in the doctor's lounge, and I'm walking out with Jimmy. 
And Jimmy goes, hey guys, you want to take a look at his nuts? And now I'm in the bathroom with four doctors. And they're all like... With my business. So... They all agree, yeah, it's probably trauma, probably not testicular cancer, but you want to be sure because you're 19 and like your chances are really ridiculously high. So they make this appointment for me. So I go home and uh, the next day I drive out to uh, the suburbs. I lived, at the time I lived in the city. I'm from uh, the, just over the bridge in New Jersey. And I go to this, um, what is it? This outpatient uh, radiology center in the suburbs. And I walk in there, and it's the kind of place where you're there for one of two reasons. You're there for a sports injury, and I am not an athlete, or something related to the womanly body. I, I don't know anything. I don't, what I know about it has no business in that radiology center. So I, it's one of those two things. And I walk in, and I go up to the thing. There's like a young kid with like a splint on his neck or whatever and like crutches. And I go up to the girl behind the, the counter, and I say, hi, uh, my name's Andrew Panabianco. I have an appointment, and I was vague on purpose because I don't feel like admitting I got a weird ball. And um, it's not really that weird. It's actually fine. You don't even know. Like I've had to like let like no, it, that's it. Like people don't think it's that creepy, so don't think it's like. Um, so <laughs> I don't know what that would be, but that would be really bad. Um, so the girl's like sitting there, and she goes, "Okay, yeah, Pana Bianco, A A B I A N C M. She types in the whole thing. Okay, Andrew, there we go. Uh, here for a test. Uh, test." Testicular ultras... Mm, uh, you could just go sit right over there. <laughs> Someone will be with you in a moment. So I'm like, yeah. So I go and I sit down. I'm sitting there for a, you know, a couple of minutes. And up comes a woman who is just bottomlessly beautiful. Just eyes as black as her hair. And that's good. That's like, that's like Disney villainous pretty. You know what I mean? How like, like how you imagine evil to be beautiful. Like that like... If you're like me, I don't know, maybe you like good. But like, she's just absolutely like, whatever. But she's just perfectly beautiful and like these great bangs. And she says, her way up to me. And I look at her and I think, no. And she says, Andrew. And I go, yeah. And she says, follow me. And she leads me back to the room. And I'm thinking the whole way, like, there's no way that this beautiful creature is going to be the one performing my scrotal ultrasound. There's absolutely no way. She's a hostess. That's what she does. She takes me to the room where the like beefy Eastern European woman with no neck is going to do the procedure. And I don't have to worry about it, but very quickly it's becoming painfully evident that this woman will in fact be doing the procedure. So she leads me into the room and we engage in the most uncomfortable conversation that I've ever had in my life. Where she says to me, okay. And very professionally, in the way that, that medical professionals are. To them, you are work. You know what I mean? It, for me, it's my body. Like, this is the thing I wake up in every morning, you know? But for them, it's just, it, this is work. They do it every day. You mean nothing to them. You are simply another thing to be ticked off on their, on their worksheet, right? And she looks at me and she says, okay, so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to leave the room. And what I want you to do is I want you to take off your pants. I want you to lay down on the table. Good so far. Then what I would like you to do is I'd like you to take this. And she has these kind of uh, paper towel-y blankets, basically. So I want you to take this. I want you to drape one over your leg. And I want you to take your penis. And I want you to rest it on your stomach. And I don't remember anything she said after that. <laughs> stomach? 
like it's fine. It's like aesthetically, it's lovely. Stomach? Like who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Stomach. You are in for a rude awakening. Because that shit ain't gonna happen. No. Stomach? And I'm not paying attention to what she's saying. She's just saying, stop your stomach. And all of a sudden, like any fear that I might have cancer immediately evaporates. And I am returned to the general stasis of a 19-year-old boy, which is, holy shit, that girl thinks my dick is small. And she says, I'm going to go, bye, bye, bye. Okay, so she leaves. And I'm now left alone in a room. Now, gentlemen, you'll know this, perhaps, ladies, you will too. Um, The penis is like the human barometer. It reacts to pressure. And when there's very little pressure, the barometer goes up. When there's tremendous pressure, the barometer goes down. And in my case, my barometer was like a canned mushroom. It's like a mood ring that comes out of the middle of you, basically. And it had shrunk, it, like down to like, like an acorn, just like, like a cashew sitting on two walnuts. And it's just not accurate. Like this is, I'm being shortchanged literally by this. And I can't let her see me like this with this like gherkin penis with my scrotum out, which is like the least, like that's not my best part. I got nice eyes, I got a deep voice. There are better, there are better parts of me that are gonna offer her a handshake. And she's gonna walk in, it's just gonna be like tiny penis scrotum. And I'm like, what am I gonna do? And I make a decision and I can't believe I make this decision, but I made this decision and I just, And not out of enjoyment. I've never done this out of need before. <laughs> but just hunched over, like like one of those lunatics in like a bus stop. Just like... <laughs> and not to get it like properly erect, just to get it like al dente. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? Where you're just kind of like, good. You know, and like that's kind of like, you know just to get it in the neighborhood where she might walk in and go, eh, not stomach, but not bad. So I, like, get it to where it needs to go, and I, like, jump on the table, and I take the towel, and I, like, wrap it around my body, and I sit on it with my ass. So, like, I'm, it's pressed down, you know, like the straight jacket for penis. And I just wait then. So I'm just, like, what am I going to do now? Like, I just masturbated in a doctor's office, and now I'm just waiting with my balls out. And I'm so uncomfortable, and the girl walks in, and she doesn't even look at me. She just goes over, and she dims the lights. And because I'm an idiot, I assume she's as uncomfortable as I am, so I say something brilliant, like, (laughs) mood lighting. Oh. (laughs) But she doesn't really pay attention, and she comes over, and she she sits at the machine. And she picks up this tube of like electroconductive gel, right? Because whenever you get, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, ultrasound. ultrasound, thank you. Whenever you get an ultrasound, thank you, Sean. Whenever, whenever you get an ultrasound, like you need that gel. And that gel is fucking cold. So she just goes and she takes it and then just a healthy pour. Just. <laughs> like soft serve level onto my scrotum and she picks up her little wand and just right into the thing and she begins doing her little thing right taking pictures this like that right and I'm lying there and I don't know what to talk about (laughs) and I'm trying to like 
disappear from that place because, you know, there hadn't been trauma until that moment. <laughs> and I'm lying there and she's just moving it around. She's taking pictures and she's saying absolutely horrible things like, okay, now press down like you're having a bowel movement. <laughs> and I'm like, like that? And she's like, yep, like that. Doo -doo -doo, and taking pictures. And um, I, I'm just trying to go anywhere else in my head. And in that moment, I, I go back to my childhood. And I remember what the trauma was. When I was a little boy, I used to sleep, this is really weird, with a, with a dowel rod next to my bed. Dowel rod, like a thin, thin stick, right? You know, right? Is that what it's called, dowel rod? Yeah. Just in case, like, you know, ninja fights should break out. So that I could, like, you know, fence them and fight, right? Because mom and dad would put me to bed, and then they would go and do whatever they do, probably, like, you know, regret having a child. And I'm left in the room to, like, you know, un under the assail of many imaginary ninjas. So I've got this thing next to my bed. So they go to bed one night, and I'm, like, in there just ninjing around, swinging this stick around. And I swear to God, I nail my left testicle hard with this stick, just... And I just... And it all dawns on me, like, that was it. That was the trauma. I don't have cancer. Yes! No! Because I'm stuck in this room and now the only thing on my mind is how the fuck am I going to get out of this room? Meanwhile, the gel, the ocean of gel that had been on my testicles has melted all over my body because I run hot. Just, you don't need to know that. That's just the thing about me. I run hot. Always hot, never cold. That's how I roll. But... It melts, and it melts, like, everywhere, like, into, like, the, the, the parts of the body that are not necessarily as unattractive, but at least, like, a strong second place. And, it, like, it's just down into, like, the gully of my butt, and just, like, everywhere, and, like, under me, and it's just terrible, and she's doing this whole thing, and finally she gets done, she gets up, and I guess I had melted more than most people melt, because she gets up, and she looks at me, and she goes, oh, okay, I'm gonna let you clean up, and I'll meet you outside. So I'm like, thanks. So she leaves. And I have to get up and literally like peel myself off this like sticky gross bed. And there's this pile of paper towels there, but they're like cheap hospital paper towels that have no absorbency whatsoever. So I'm there like trying to towel myself off here with my like pants off, dick out, just cleaning myself off here. And it's really hard to dry a jelly scrotum. So you have to like hold it like you're unfurling like some kind of like official message from medieval times and then just so I'm just trying to and it's all like spreading around me and drying there and it's just like it's gross I'm just covered in this stuff and I'm like making this huge mess and I clean off the bed and by the end I've got this like giant pile of like jelly gross paper towels and I'm like what the fuck am I going to do with this stuff now and I look over and the trash can doesn't have a bag in it and it's rude to just put them in there and I don't know what to do so I'm like what the fuck and I look over and on the coat rack is one of those like disposable gowns and I go Got it. And I go over and I grab the disposable gown and I lay it down and I take all the paper towels and I put them in the middle and I wrap them all up and I take the belt and I tie it at the top so it looks like this like sodden hobo bag. <laughs> and it's just right there in the middle of the bed. I'm like, good. And I pick up my pants, put them on, walk out the door. And I'm going to get out of there because I have now remembered what the trauma was from. I now believe I don't have cancer. And by the way, I never had cancer. All the shit was in my head. So I walk out 
to the thing. And I'm just trying to get, make a beeline for the desk. So the girl will give me my paperwork. And the girl looks at me and she's like, Pana Bianco. And I go, yeah, that was me. She goes, good. And she's like, give me the whole thing. I'm like, yeah, let's go, let's go, let's go. Got to get out of here. Got to get out of here. Really uncomfortable. Screw I'm got to get out of here. And all of a sudden I feel on my shoulder. And I turn around and it's the goddess. And she's holding the sodden hobo bag. And she says, I think you left this. And I search my mind for any response. And the best I could come up with was, no, that's for you. And I got the fuck out of there. Thank you. At least he was able to get al dente. <laughs> I will be using that forever from now on. Our next storyteller is a good friend of mine. She is actually a teacher at the school that we started. Uh, the sister company of Risk is the school, The Story Studio. You can find us at thestorystudio.org. We do one-on-one training over Skype. We sometimes come to town to do workshops. So look us up. She is a wonderful storyteller. She has toured with The Moth. She has her own storytelling show in New York called Barbershop Stories, where they go from barbershop to barbershop around New York City and tell stories. That's at barbershopstories.com. Please welcome to the stage Don Fraser! I'm sitting at this bar in the beautiful moonlit sky in Rio de Janeiro, Copacabana Beach, Brazil. I look up and I see this huge Christ statue that's like looking out over the entire city as if it's like forgiving all the people for being so damn sexy all at once. I look down and I see all these beautiful people just wandering around and I'm thinking to myself, this is where I belong. But I'm pretty tipsy, and I need to go home. So I, I call over the waiter, and I say, Garçon, you know, waiter, bring me the check. But the person sitting directly across from me, Marcy, my Portuguese instructor, stops me, and she says, Donnie, 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 wait, 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 wait. Come on. One more. And I was like, well, she's my Portuguese instructor. Go ahead, bring one more drink, right? So they go back, and he brings me another drink. We hang out, we're eating french fries, we're talking. But now I'm really tipsy, and the garçon, the waiter knows, he's like, oh, this girl definitely is not from here, because every, unlike everyone else who can handle the liquor after about five, six drinks, I definitely cannot. And so I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go. And Marcy says, wait, wait, Donnie, Donnie, a cidera. And I'm thinking to myself, this is my first week in Portuguese and in Brazil. I'm learning this Portuguese. I don't know what this word is. Saideta, is, is that the tip? No, that's not the tip. Is that the bathroom? I was like, Marcy, what is the saideta? She's like, it's the word for the drinky after your last drinky. <laughs> and I was like, there is a word in Portuguese for the drink after the last drink? <laughs> this place is out of control, but I love it. And this was going to be my year. Marcy 
was my Brazilian Portuguese instructor. She had this really, like, really sun-kissed skin with these freckles, and, you know, she chain-smoked like a pack of cigarettes a day. It was like as if the guy from the Dos Equis commercial had, like, a younger sister. <laughs> That would be Marcy. And every single day we would converse, we would chat, and in exchange for these awesome Portuguese classes, all I had to do was to go around and to give speeches to people about what it meant to be an American. And so I was like, oh, I am going to love this job. And so there I am in Brazil. But when I go to give these speeches to different people, it's really kind of difficult because they ask really hard questions. So I'm at this one event and somebody stands up and they say, Donnie, Donnie, why, why Bushy is your presidency? I said, I don't know why Bush is our president. I didn't vote for that fool, you know? Come on now. Be like, well, Donnie, Donnie, why, why Bushy want to wage war? I don't know why Bush wants to wage war. Because of the oil? I don't know, because he can? You know, and they're like, well, well, but majority people voted for Bushy? I said, well, no, actually, the majority of people did not vote for Bush, but I don't know how to explain that in Portuguese, so I'm not gonna even try it, you know, don't even bother. But you guys, you guys have it right. This is Brazil, I mean, look at this. You guys have a progressive president. You have world-class soccer and samba, and sexies, my favorite three S's. You know, you guys got this right. I want to become more and more Brazilian. And, and the more that I thought about it, I really didn't want to have this identity because America to me was everything that was, was wrong at the time. We were at war and it was, there was corruption and I just didn't feel it. And so I wanted to be Brazilian. And so I said to myself, okay, this is the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to learn the ways of being Brazilian through Marcy, my instructor. And so she agreed to it. So it was awesome because unlike anything I've ever done at UCLA, this was very informal. I mean, it was her job to get me drunk so I could speak better Portuguese. <laughs> Not a bad scenario. But then when we wanted to learn about different fruits, she would take me to the grocery store. She'd say, okay, this pineapple, abacaxi. I'm gonna repeat, okay, abakashi. This is fish, pesci. I was like, okay, cool, pesci, got it. And that's how I learned the language. And when I needed to learn how to get around, she's like, okay, we're gonna go in the car. And when we get to the stop sign, you don't stop, okay? I said, what? She's like, no, just flash the lights, give a little beep of the horn and keep on going or else you're gonna get carjacked. I was like, what? <laughs> so I learned how to drive in the streets of Rio. And then in order to learn how to cuss, she took me to a soccer game. Of course. Puts me in a big red jersey. And when the other team scores, she's like, okay, this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna yell out, vai tomar no cu. I was like, what does that mean? She's like, it means take it up the ass. And I was like, okay, cool, vai tomar no cu. She's like, no, 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 Don, no, 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 no. Say, vai tomar no cu. And I was like, okay, vai tomar no cu. She's like, yes, like a true Brazilian. I was like, yeah, and I was getting it. I was feeling it. I was like, I like being Brazilian. This is hot. This is sexy, you know? But then I go to a Brazilian bikini store, and I try on a bikini and look at myself in the mirror, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm not that Brazilian yet. 
but you know, I'm working on it. I'm working on my swag and working on my language and all this type of stuff. So we're having a great time. And a couple of months into it, we, we go out to this party about an hour outside of Rio. And it's two o'clock in the morning when we're coming home, dead, dead tired. And as our taxi comes into the city, there's a police security point. And so we pull off on the side of the road and the police come over to the car and they start asking, where are you guys coming from? Marcy answers, oh, we're just coming from a party outside of town, just having a good time, just trying to get back home. And they say, okay, well, do you have anything illegal in the car? And she says, no, we don't have anything illegal. That's stupid. And the police say, okay, well, would you mind coming out of the taxi? And I turned to her and I was like, what is going on? She's like, don't worry about it. Just come on out. Just get out of the taxi. I say, okay. So we get out of the taxi, police walk over, and they start opening everything. They start looking under the hood, they start looking under the wheels, opening the glove compartment. I was like, what are they doing? She's like, don't worry about it, just let it go. And then they come over to me, and they're like, can we see your bag, please? Um, I don't know what's going on, so I was like, okay, I guess, sure. So I give them my purse. And they start going through all the little compartments of my purse. And I start sweating. And I'm like, what are they doing? What are they looking for? And they pull out this little gift bag that I had gotten from the party. And they walk over to Marcy. And they say, so what is this? Marcy looks at me. And she's like, I don't know. What is it? And I reply, I'm sorry. I was at the party. And, you know, I was hanging out with those guys. Got a little gift bag, and the little gift bag has a little tiny bit of weed in it. And she says, what? I was like, I'm sorry, I don't know, I'm from San Francisco. Like, you know, this isn't cool here. She's like, no, it's not cool here. Like, okay, my bad, my bad, you know, what what, what are we going to do? So she starts talking to them, and she wants to try and just get us out of this situation. She's explaining, oh, I'm sorry. This is a foreign exchange student. She's here as an ambassador of goodwill. And even though I was only 22 years old, the ambassador title made me feel pretty damn good and important. But the police decide to take this as a sign that, oh, she's American. Nice. Interesting. So they come over to me and they ask, so is this your, your weed? And I say, no, I'm sorry, it's not. I was taking it from the party to you know, some other people in Rio. My bad, you know. And uh, they say, okay. They walk back over to Marcy, and all I hear is, bop, 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 what is going on? And Marcy comes back over to me, and she's like, what are you telling them? I was like, I don't know, I told them it wasn't mine. I told them I was like, you know, this is somebody else's in the city. She said, well, now they think que você é um traficante, that you are a drug trafficker. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm, a, I'm not no drug trafficker. She's like, well, that's what people do if they're taking drugs from one place to another. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, are you freaking kidding me? No, no. Look, look, can you please talk to them? Just get us out of the situation. This is not good. And so she starts talking, back and forth and back and forth. And they come back over to me, 
and they are going to want some money. I have been in Brazil now at this point for about seven months, living off of rice and beans and basically nothing so I could stay for as long as I possibly can because I'm still trying to be Brazilian, right? But I have no money and I've severed all my ties with all my American friends because I wasn't in Brazil to learn English. I was in Brazil to learn Portuguese. And so I don't have any friends. And she's like, well, you need to make some friends right now because if you ain't got no money, you're not getting home. So I call up one friend who I had met on a study abroad program. And I was like, go to Lauren's house. Maybe she'll be able to help you. It's three o'clock in the morning, but we'll see. And so she jumps in the taxi and she leaves to go to Rio. And I'm sitting there, hostage by the Brazilian police on the side of the road waiting for my Brazilian Portuguese teacher to come back for money for the police so I can be let free. And I'm like, oh crap, how did I get myself in this situation? And so I'm just pacing back and forth on the side of the road, pacing and pacing and pacing. And I'm like looking at these police officers and they're not much older than me, but they're carrying these AK-47s I don't know where the hell I'm at. This is not a good situation. It's four o'clock in the morning, and now it's five o'clock in the morning, and I don't know if Marcy's coming back for me. And so the police come over to me, and they're like, look, we're gonna have to take you to another spot because you know this is taking a long time. And I said, wait, 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 no, wait, hold on, hold on. Hold on a second. You told my friends we're going to meet them at this spot. You told me that you would not leave. You, you promised, you promised me, like, do not leave, do not take me from this place. And they said, no, look, we've spoken to the taxi driver and your friend. They're meeting us at this other location. And I'm like, okay, I guess. I have no other choice, right? So I sit in the back of the police car with these huge AK-47s and these six police officers. We drive somewhere, and then they stop, and I get back out of the car, and I'm pacing. It's five o'clock in the morning. And finally, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I can't even get any type of reality stardom out of this because, you know, Locked Up Abroad is not on the air yet. There is this, this is like a lose-lose situation if they do not come back for me, okay? Finally, at 6 o'clock in the morning, Marcy comes back. She walks over to the, one of the officers. She gives him the cash. I look over. They give me a nod. And I go back to the taxi where... Marcy and I had originally been four hours earlier on our way back into the city. And I'm mad, and I'm like, I'm so aggravated. And I'm, she looks at me, she's like, what's the matter? I was like, what the hell was that? Like, how can the police just go, can they just go through my stuff like that? And she looks at me, and she's like, yeah, they can just go through your stuff like that. And I say, but, but why? I mean, why can they do that? They have that right. At least in the States, I would have some type of probable cause, you know, some type of rights. They can just do that? And she's like, yes, they can just do that. And I turn and I was like, oh, police, fight to mano cool. She's like, very good, very good. You're learning the language. And 
I was so mad. I didn't know what was going on because from the time I had gotten there, I had been pro-American and then I was pro-Brazilian. But as we drove back into the city and as I finally calmed down from a crazy and adventurous night, one thing that I knew for sure was that I was happy and grateful for my freedom. Thanks. This is Risk, and this is Radiation City. Behind me now, I just want to take a moment to remind you that with the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office with the traffic and the parking and everyone mailing packages. So what we do is use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you avoid the hassle of going to the post office. Everything you do there, you can do right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it. And right now you get this special offer when you use our promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial plus $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Our final story today comes from the lovely Katie Sampson. She may have to get around in a wheelchair, but she sure as hell gets around. She's told so many unforgettable stories for the First Person Arts Organization down there in Philly, so we're just thrilled to finally have her on the show. Here she is now. This is Katie Sampson with a story we call The First Time Again. So I'm 20 years old. I'm uh, at a park with some friends. It's evening time. I'm on winter break from college, my sophomore year, and I'm I'm home with some friends. And we go we go to this park. And we decide to go sledding. I jump in a sled at the top of the hill. I hit my first jump. There's two guys sitting behind me, and we lose control of the sled. I I let go and I fly through the air, 
and I land right on my neck. Snapped. It snapped. And I instantly knew that I had broken my neck. And the paralysis was instant to the point where I had been freezing my ass off on top of the hill and this warmth flows through me. And the paralysis was instant to the fact that I fell at the top of the hill and I slowly felt my body floating all the way down to the bottom because I couldn't feel my body hit the ground repeatedly time after time after time. I landed on top of a friend and I said, I can't move, you need to go and get someone. And I sat with another friend holding my hand. The ambulance came, I was driven to a nearby helicopter and I was flown to uh, Jefferson University Hospital here in Philadelphia where they performed a spinal subluxation. They fused the bone from my hip to my neck, three inches of titanium. I spent the next six months in a rehab hospital here in Philadelphia, one of the best rehab hospitals in the country, McGee. Two years later, I'm actually back at college. But it was one of those situations where I had slowly made these milestones. I had been through learning about having the disability, figuring out the wheelchair, learning how to transfer myself, bathing myself, all these things. And I was back at college in my last semester without my mother. Because you see, my mom had come back to college with me. And it's not the type of dream that you envision for yourself as a young college student, especially when it comes to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> and all those things had happened for me prior to my time having my, my sledding accident. And it was one of those situations where I really wanted to experience my senior year without my mom. I was a selfish 22-year-old kid. And so I, we decided to hire a friend to come and live with me as my roommate, as well as she was a nurse. And she was a little bit younger, and she knew that she had to sort of stay out of my way a little bit. So things were starting to fall into place as far as all of these little milestones my senior year. I had gotten back involved with sports. I had been a lacrosse player um, my freshman year. My team had won the national championship. The team had brought me back as a student coach. We won the national championship again. I decided to take a modern dance class in a wheelchair uh, with 30 freshman football players, <laughs> which was terrifying and awesome. Um, I had made new friends, friends that didn't know me before I had my spinal cord injury, which was so fantastic. But the romance really wasn't falling into place. And, you know, I had had a successful career romantically. Um, when I was 12, I had my first kiss with my summer sweetheart on the beach in uh, Westport Harbor, Massachusetts. You know, we, we swapped some saliva. It, I think there was a boob grab. Uh, over the bathing suit. I shouldn't really say boob. It was more like mosquito bite or like a tablespoon of mashed potatoes uh, that he was feeling there. I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, cut to like late teenage years. Um, my losing of my virginity happened on summer vacation with my family and my grandparents. 
with a week-long stay at a, at a resort in Florida, to which at the end of the week, I had been having sex with our waiter. And my grandmother asked my grandfather how much we should tip the waiter, and he says, I think Katie already took care of that. <laughs> yeah, so that happened. Um, my freshman year of college, I had had an altercation in a dorm room with a young man in which I was performing a sexual act and the fire alarm went off and I was just so embarrassed because I couldn't do the act on the rhythm with the fire alarm and then I started doing it on the rhythm against the fire alarm and it just wasn't working with the fire alarm, if you know what I'm saying. So that just didn't go as well as I had hoped. Um, but, uh, you know, when I was in rehab, I remember all of these times where people were... I had a friend that uh, had sent me a book called Enabling Romance, you know, for, for those times when you are in a wheelchair and you want to, you know, get, get your groove back. Um, I remember my physical therapist slipping a, a VHS in my room at one point and having to sit through these painful, painful videos, uh, black and white videos of men in wheelchairs having sex with their wives or caregivers, who knows. Um, but there was no women doing those things. Uh, There's no women in wheelchairs. Uh, and so that was really confusing to me. But... Uh, I don't know, I just thought, you know, like, it wasn't going to happen. Or worst case scenario, like, if it happened, something really awkward would happen along with it. I'd, like, fall out of my chair, or the guy would whip out or something. So, homecoming weekend, I'm with some of my best friends that are back visiting on campus. And we decide to go to a kind of keg party of sorts. And um, I have to mention this because I think it's really significant to this story. I have a friend who has his doctoral in uh, disability studies, and he has this theory about people who've suffered a spinal cord injury and their recovery in, the, in social life and cultural life. And he says that for every year post-spinal cord injury, you increase your age by four years. So the first year you have a spinal cord injury, you're four years old. You're brought down to almost an infant level. The second year, you're 12. The third, or I'm sorry, math, uh, you're eight. I was told there'd be no math tonight. Um, uh, yeah, eight, right, 12. So I'm going into my, my third year, 12 years, right? Okay, we're, we're back. Um, and uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm in my early adolescence. I'm like, you know, I've sent mom home. I'm with my roommate slash nurse. That's pretty cool. I'm out with friends. Uh, I'm going to do something dangerous. Um, so we go to this party, and uh, I'm reconnecting with people, and I see this guy from across the room that I recognize. And uh, his name is Sam, and he had graduated a few years before. And uh, we just, we start talking, and he's very funny, and yet I can tell that He's kind of the goofball of his friends, and they're coming up and hugging him and saying, like, like, you know, hey, how's it going? And he's asking me questions about lacrosse and about coming back to college. And, and then at some point I realized that I have to get out of this dormitory and be carried out because the more the night progresses, the less sober people in the party are. And public safety on campus did not want me in houses 
late at night in case there was a fire. So I was not only a fire hazard, but I was kind of like the, you know, the the party downer at, at times. It's like, oh, we got to carry the girl in a wheelchair out. Don't no one get too drunk tonight. So um, he volunteers to actually pick me up and lift me back up out of the house. And then he asks if he can walk me home. And, and I remember my best friend was there and she's like, giving me the stink eye like I don't know about this and he says something just just so incredibly charming he's like I I can take care of her you know I got this and so he walks me back and I'm I'm blabbering nervous wreck because I I still don't have it in my mind that anything's actually going to happen like we're going to have this sort of like hug goodbye this awkward hug where he's going to come down with like one arm and give me a little pat pat and send me send me into my apartment and then we, we get back, and I'm, I live like three houses down practically from where this party's happening. So it was a short walk. And I'm sort of just figuring out how I'm going to say goodbye. And he's like asking me if he can see my apartment. And uh, I'm like, did I just fucking Jedi mind trick this guy? Like, what <laughs> is happening? What is happening? Uh, so I welcome him in. I like, give him a little tour. Like, here's my bedroom. Here's... Uh, living room, kitchen, can I get you a beer? And he's like, um, do you think I could sleep over? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, on the couch? Uh, and he's like, no, I'd, I'd like to spend the night with you. And I'm like, uh, yeah, that, that, that sounds great. Um, why don't, uh, I have a roommate, she's going to help me into bed, because I don't think I want you to deal with all that sort of stuff. And why don't you sit here? Here's a magazine. Um, here's a beer. Uh, well, I'll just like ring a bell when I'm ready. <laughs> so I go and knock on my roommate's door, and she comes out, not knowing that anyone's there. She's just woken up. And she's like, how was the party? And I'm like, shh, there's a boy in the living room. And we both, she looks over and sees his legs crossed, like sticking out of the living room. And she looks at me, and, and I look at her, and we start jumping up and down. <laughs> There's a boy in the living room. There's a boy in the living room. There's a boy in the living room. Oh, my God! And I'm like, I'm happy. I'm elated. I'm excited. I, I start to get this, like, public enemy song in my head, like, I got game. She's got game. Who's got game? We're having this, like, mad tribal dance party silently in my living room, and I'm like flapping my wings like I, I don't know what's happening and uh, I have to calm down because I have to I have to make this magic moment happen um, so uh, she helps me get into bed with um, I use a transfer board and I'm like you know she's like do I get undressed like no I don't want to assume that that's going to happen like and I wasn't to be honest ready because keep in mind I'm still 12 years old it's kind of a weird scenario, but yeah, stick with me on it. Um, it just got really weird, didn't it? Yeah, yeah okay. So anyway, um, I put on some Pete Yorn first album. Forgot that I had left the CD player on repeat. We'll come back to that. Um, so uh, I'm in bed. I'm sort of like half dressed, like kind of half undressed, I'm not really sure, um, and uh, I think my, my roommate sort of goes to her room, and uh, she's like, okay, have a good night, and it's like, as like signaling, you know, like, 
we're ready for you. <laughs> so he kind of gives a little knock and, you know, comes, walks in, and he's like six foot five and tall, he's really tall, and he's got red hair and like kind of scraggly beard, and I'm like really seeing him for the first time, like in my fucking bedroom. <laughs> And, I, you know, I'm so awkward. I'm like, come on in. The water is warm here. Um, uh, so this has not happened to me before. Um, and I'm just like, I'm just going to talk through how nervous I am. And I, I sort of just say, like, can we just uh, be together and maybe not, like, be together tonight? Because I just don't know if I'm ready for that. But I'm so glad you're here. And he he kind of just calms me down. He holds my hand. He sort of pats it a little bit. And we start talking. And he asks me, like, where I can feel, um, where I can't feel. And um, surprisingly enough, with spinal cord injury, you can lose your motor function and still have your sensory function. <laughs> yeah. So we talk about that a little bit. Um, and then uh, he grabs, he grabs, he caresses my face, and, uh, and we kiss. And uh, he's, it's like there's this Old Spice meets natural light going on in his mouth a little bit. And um, it's, it's lovely, and it's like warm and sweet and compassionate, and, and then he falls asleep. Um, and I'm sitting there with my wide eyes looking at this man in my bed and really believing it for the first time that I had made this magic moment happen. And then Pete Yorn goes back to the first song. <laughs> and then I realize I had left the CD player on, repeat, and I could not fall asleep. And I'm, I'm like, there's a man in my bed. I brought him here. I made this happen. This is so exciting. I could not fall asleep. I was I was awake the entire night, like pinching him. Like, is he real? Yeah. Uh, is he gonna be there when I when I I couldn't fall asleep because I didn't think he was gonna be there when I woke up. That's what it was all about. So, you know, dawn approaches. Birds are chirping, and he stirs, and and I f sort of fake stir. Oh yeah! Wow, what a what a, what a night's sleep. Oh, oh, how are you? How are you doing? Yeah, want to get breakfast? Uh, how is this going to end? And um, he has to catch a ride back to New York, and uh, we have this really sweet, gentle conversation. I. He kind of helps me get out of bed, and I walk him outside. And, you know, I'm sort of uh, thinking, you know, I'm probably never going to see him again. Who knows? Um, but we just had this great night, and it was just such a sweet and charming person. The rest of the day, I, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't get all the fucking song lyrics of Pete Yorn songs out of my head, first of all. And second of all, I was exhausted, but I was so emotional because I was I was just walking down the sidewalk. I'd go into a store, and everyone I'd meet, I'd be like, "You want to know what I did last night?" Uh, like I wanted to call my physical therapist. I wanted to call like my best friend. I I wanted to call ESPN and get a play-by-play. -play, you know, like how did that go? Where was where was that hand? Oh, right, yeah, nice. Um, I wanted to call my mom. Oh, I wanted to call my mom and tell her, like, I brought a boy home. Oh, that's weird. Um, 
a couple hours later, I turn on the computer, and he's already emailed me. And the email is in the inbox, like it exists. And he's actually has feelings and wants to connect with me virtually, not physically. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm actually not going to tell you what the email said. Because it was really, um, it was private. It was between the two of us. I've, I've never gotten anything like it in my life. I've never felt so connected to someone. And I've never felt so proud of myself for going through with it to getting my life back. To having a moment with someone who could see me for the person that I was and not for my disability or not for my difference. And it was, uh, it was the best type of connection I could have ever had. And I knew from that day forward um, that I had some serious game. <laughs> Thank you. it for this week folks this is boombox seance behind me now don't forget we're in seattle february 1st stories on the theme shocking then dallas on february 7th and the theme that night is over the top people of seattle and dallas send me your story pitches at kevin at risk-show.com meanwhile in new york and la our next live shows are on december 19th in new york we'll have melina williams and in la we'll have the genius james adomian as well as satya baba from tv's the new girl find out more about our live shows at risk-show.com slash tour hey if you want to get someone in your life an unforgettable gift for the holidays how about some one-on-one storytelling coaching sessions over skype with me. Everyone loves those sessions. I know I do. And you can go get them as well as gift certificates. Since I was a little boy, since I was a little goddamn boy, I have said certificates. Uh, Get gift certificates for all of our workshops at thestorystudio.org. And don't forget, Risk is listener-supported. 
If you want to get us a gift for the holidays, get yourself to MaximumFun.org slash donate. We are a proud member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts. And the way to help us stay alive and keep this thing running is to go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member or make a one-time donation and be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. With all that said, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Let you clean up, and I'll meet you outside.